Hello and welcome to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. This episode features a conversation with Van Newkirk, staff writer for The Atlantic, who discussed Charlottesville, the media's shortcomings in its coverage of racial issues, and many other topics in a conversation with Nick O'Mealy, director of the Shorenstein Center. Okay, let's get this show on the road. Great to see everybody. My name is Nico. I'm director of the Shorenstein Center here at the Kennedy School. Hooray, welcome. I am thrilled today to have with us Van Newkirk. Without further ado, Van Newkirk is staff writer at The Atlantic, where he covers, in some ways, just about everything. Uh, But... Uh, three really important issues he's put a lot of time and energy into covering that are dramatically appropriate to the current moment. Um, The first is about race in America, and that is more than the current moment. That is America's story. But the other two is uh, uh, healthcare policy. I asked him what he, how his day was going, and he said he got up at 5 a.m. to start calling governors to ask what they thought of the current effort to repeal Obamacare. So we hope to talk to him about that. But also environmental justice. He's written some incredible stuff about um, in the aftermath of these hurricanes, uh, the, the toxins that are released into the environment and what that, what that means for especially for um, uh, poor communities and communities of color. He is the co-founder and contributing editor for Seven Scribes, a website and community dedicated to promoting rioters and artists of color. And I am absolutely thrilled to have him here. Thank you so much for joining us. Ben. Thanks for having me. In the wake of the um, in the wake of the the protests and violence in Charlottesville, you wrote an essay for The Atlantic where you say, quote, the Southern reverence of the Confederacy for the first time in my life seems debatable and destructible in a way I never thought possible. Talk to us a little bit about that and about where you come from. So I wrote that piece uh, about growing up in the shadow of the Confederacy as, as a young black man who was born and raised in North Carolina in a place where, like I described, Confederate statues, there aren't really many other statues when you think about it. The first statues I'd seen of non-Confederates actually were when I'd gone to DC to see the, the, the National Mall. And so this modern debate we've had over the past couple of years over the place of Confederate statues, over the place of monuments and memorials to the Confederacy, to Jim Crow, uh, we've been having that, but not in the level where it seems like it actually encroach on the place of those statues. And the place of those statues, uh, we've undersold it in the media as sort of, okay, there's one statue here, there's one statue there, we should take them down. But what I describe in that piece is that they are actually central to the way of life in the South. And we don't put up statues of things we don't want to remember and things that don't celebrate victories for us. And so this, we should actually look at the last couple of weeks, the last year or so, as maybe a watershed moment in challenging Southerners, especially to rethink, to rediscover a new identity. And I think that process is actually beginning. Uh, and that's remarkable. 
Does it surprise you? It does completely. Um, And it surprises me, especially after uh, the election of Donald Trump, which many people thought uh, and many people reporting was buoyed by a certain white resentment, white anger, a certain racial animus. And so the idea that that kind of awakening could be happening after uh, what many people believe to be a reaffirmation of the central the, the, the centrality of racism in America, that's, that, that's very remarkable. And we really haven't gotten the sort of perspective we need to take a step back, to look at uh, just how important people in the South reconsidering statues, just how important people in Virginia reconsidering Robert E. Lee is. That, that, that is a, you know, it's, it's almost Donald Trump likes to make the argument that, okay, they're going to come for Jefferson next, they're going to come for Washington next. But it actually is on the same level of just immensity that people are reconsidering Robert E. Lee in Virginia. Uh, It's on the same level of people reconsidering Washington in America, I think. I always think of uh, Robert E. Lee's tomb at Washington and Lee University, and it's this impressive altar of white marble. (laughs) Um, But you also, in writing about Charlottesville, you also wrote about how the, in some sense, the black community seem unimpressed by the statues coming down. And maybe they were, they were suspicious that that was really going to change anything. Yeah. So the other side of the coin on this, on how remarkable, how incredible the moment is, is the fact that they still are symbols. They're just symbols. Uh, statues, there aren't statues in places in Chicago of Robert E. Lee where they bomb, firebombed black people moving in the neighborhoods. They don't have Robert E. Lee there, and yet still the founding sin of America is still being perpetuated. So while we do have to recognize the importance, uh, while I think the memorials and monuments are a first order item, a first step in reconsidering, in no way, shape, or form do they actually erase the enduring legacy of racism, of Jim Crow, of all of the different ways that we've created different caste systems. And so as journalists, as as consumers, we have to dig deeper. And when I was in Charlottesville talking to the black community, you know, they said, look, this is great. We don't like Robert E. Lee. Okay. But what comes next? And, and what happens to the people who've been pushed out by the university, who can't afford to live in town, who, who used to live in this black neighborhood that had been raised for development purposes? And what happens when the perpetrator is an ostensibly liberal institution like a university? And so we have to really start digging deep into uh, what drives and creates inequality. And sometimes the answers to that aren't the ones we would like. Yeah, sometimes they're ugly answers. Mm, often. Uh, and what needs to happen for, say, the people of Charlottesville to have equality is going to be some of the very same people who are out loud, who are pushing for uh, removing the Lee statue, who are very vocal uh, opponents of, say, Klansmen. It's going to take them doing some things, too, uh, to actually carry on that promise. It's not, you don't just get rid of a statue. You don't just come out and openly uh, denounce the Klan. You have to put in some work. And uh, that's the next step. 
How do you how would you critique or describe or grade the way uh, the national news media is talking about race in especially in the context of the Trump presidency? How would I grade it? Uh, um, <laughs> I'd give us a big fat F right now. I do not think we've done well at all in talking about race and talking about race, not as this taboo. People like to say it's difficult to talk about race. You know, it's it's very difficult to talk about. But actually, race is the American story. You, you said American story earlier and that I was reporting on that. I believe race to be perhaps the central component of that story. So we're talking about things, you know, we, we breathe and, and, and drink. It's something as pervasive as that. So why is it so difficult to talk about? It's because when you really start getting into uh, discussions like, you know, this recent kerfuffle about who gets to be called a white supremacist, you get even stuff like that, you start actually going into the realm of culpability, of, of responsibility. And nobody wants to be responsible for black people being pushed out of a town. That's rough. Nobody wants to be responsible for a, an, a racial inequality gap where white people make about 28 times on average the average black family. Nobody wants to be responsible for fixing that. And so we, we like to play in circles. We like to say stuff like racially charged, which uh, means absolutely nothing. Um, we, we like to say things like that that make us feel good about calling out the affect of racism without doing anything about the actual muscle of racism. The reality of the reality. racism. Yes. And so in that context, talk, talk, what do you make of Jamel Hill and uh, the way the, the, the president responded to uh, a sports anchor? So Jamel Hill's job is to provide her analytical opinion about things. It is to provide, based on the facts she has, an informed opinion on those facts. And I think the facts Jamel Hill is dealing with are, uh, ta Coates, my colleague, laid them out pretty well on Chris Hayes' show. You have a president who has, who has basically brought out, trotted out the same kind of uh, stereotyping that white supremacists did for when they call black men rapists. Uh, for, for most of Jim Crow. You have a president who white supremacists think is a white supremacist. Uh, you have a president who is doing lots of things that white supremacists openly cheer and who denounces people who call him white supremacists more than he denounces those white supremacists. That's a lot of evidence for her to make that conclusion on. Um, and, and so for... And also the, the converse, him calling her out, uh, the, the office saying she deserves to lose her job. We've been talking a lot about the First Amendment. We've been talking a lot about the right to a free press. We've been talking a lot about the right to express an opinion, not only just an opinion, informed analytical opinions. But yet it seems, you know, you take this back to also April Ryan. You have these prominent black women, especially, who are making judgments, who are making, who are publicly stating their opinion, and receiving intense blowback for it from people in power, from officials. That's not a good sign for a free press. It's not a good sign for the freedom of speech. And so we really need to, I think, grapple with who gets to speak freely and about what. But does it surprise you that that happened on ESPN? 
No. Um, ESPN to me is at the center of, strangely, uh, the center of a lot of conversations in America. Sports are. Um, I, I refer to sports as the new American church, sort of. Uh, the new American religion, in a way. Football, especially. And ESPN, if football is a religion, ESPN would be the mother church. And so you have people working at that mother church. You have people who are uh, suddenly, you know, ESPN has always been very diverse uh, for as long as I remember it. But black anchors, black journalists on ESPN have had to do sort of this Stu Scott bargain where they get to be as performatively black as they want to be. They can say they can use slang. They can go in, uh, you know, they can say booyah. They can wear their hats backwards. But they can't actually make political judgments on racism in America. And you see the modern moment where black journalists, are they feel compelled to speak on things. So they, they, they feel compelled to speak on the fact that hate crimes are rising in America, the fact that black people, not just black people, people of color are being murdered by police. They feel compelled to talk about that. And that old bargain doesn't work for them anymore. And you see that happening with Jamel. Uh, you see it happen with folks like Bomani Jones. Um, and it's actually, I would look to ESPN and to sports as a microcosm of America right now. Interesting. But I, I'm wondering if part of the reason it's happening on ESPN is because of the reluctance or, or to engage on, the, on, on race or racism in, uh, in other media, in other mainstream media. You know, like Charlie Rose didn't bring it up in interviewing Steve Bannon. Yeah. Actually, that's the other, the other side of the coin with ESPN is actually race has been they, they don't they don't shy away from talking about race on a surface level. You know, you talk about all these you have the same stories on outside the lines of struggling black athletes who dealt with adversity. Um, it, actually, people love the story of, of a- athletes who succeeded despite these challenges because it tells them, you know, it's part of the story of sports. You, you, you overcome um, and you overcome not only the athletic hurdles to being great, you overcome the social hurdles. And actually, somewhat, that reliance on the narrative of overcoming makes it difficult to talk about people who don't overcome. It makes it difficult to use the pulpit like, say, a Colin Kaepernick to talk about the people who, are, who don't make it past the hurdle. Um, and so ESPN's in a, in a strange place where they do talk about race, but they can't talk about race in a way that challenges the way we like to talk about race. And that's still, you know, it still hamstrings them in a way. They can't address systemic racism or institutional racism. They can address it, but as long as we are talking about it in a way that's optimistic, that, 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 that shows that we have overcome and we are overcoming. And perhaps if your message is that actually we aren't and haven't overcome, that doesn't have a place yet on ESPN. I also was struck by the comparison to, um, you know, during the campaign when Trump uh, said Judge Curiel couldn't uh, do his job because he was Mexican. Right. That you you had some very prominent Republicans, you know, Speaker of the House say, well, that's a textbook definition of racism. And that that meant that the media didn't have to make that judgment. Right. That there was a that the party itself and leaders in the party were saying this is the norm and the candidates violated it, um, and uh, and I I thought it was it was just really interesting that um, that that this that the that that the 
like naming it white supremacist, like naming that behavior, calling it out, that happened by a member of the media. And I wonder what you think. Do we do we need more of that, or what is the role of the media in 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 calling in in trying to name or call what's happening? So I'm going to especially take a- when when norms are being daily you know, busted by our president. I'm going to take a bit of a circuitous circuitous route here uh, to answer the question. What does white supremacy, what does a white supremacist mean? Today, our textbook definitions tend to uh, involve people who like to wear hoods, who like to wear swastikas, who like to march around with tattoos and bald heads, uh, people who burn torches around a Robert E. Lee statue. Those are people that today uh, journalists are pretty comfortable with calling white supremacists, right? Well, you know, we go out there and if a guy's wearing has a swastika, yeah, he's a white supremacist. I can say that without controversy. I can say it more more importantly without being sued for defamation. <laughs> That's a concern. <laughs> but when we talk about, I think the old definition of white supremacy. We talk about what people in the civil rights movement were talking about when they called people white supremacists. They were talking about a state where most or all black people in some places couldn't vote. They were talking about Jim Crow. They're talking about a white supremacist state. It was not maintained by Klansmen. It was maintained by regular people. And they called those folks white supremacists because they maintained white supremacy. It's like a car. You have a car that's white supremacy, there's only the people that make the car and drive the car, are they only white supremacists? What about the mechanics? What about the people who maintain it, give it gas, who ride in it, who benefit from having that car? What do we call those folks? Over time, as we have, like I said, developed this narrative of the, that we overcame in the civil rights movement, that we overcame our history of white supremacy, the definition has changed along with consensus. Definition has changed to only include the people that normal people in suits, you know, like go to church, would cast out. It, we've it's almost classist in a way, actually. We, we've developed a, a, a definition where only people who would once be called crazy get to be called white supremacists. And so now you, you in the modern day, you have a journalist calling the president a white supremacist based on my reading to be the old meaning someone who supports and maintains a white supremacist state or wants to bring one back, depending on your, your, your vantage point. And she gets blasted for it. People think it's defamation. People think it's uh, going against, you have to have a certain amount of evidence. Basically, the evidence has to be that Trump has to come out and say, I'm a white supremacist. <laughs> or he has to get a swastika tattoo. Never mind the fact that he's like retweeted swastikas. You know, it doesn't mean anything. It does mean something for people in media to be challenging that, for, for media to have sort of the ability to challenge consensus that has developed in direct relation to media basically calling things out in the past. Media should always be ahead of consensus. Should not, and should not bow to consensus. Media should be thinking about deeply what are the meaning of these things and how does using, you know, I think words, using phrases, that, how, do, how do they advance the mission of journalism, which is truth? It's not consensus. 
And right now we have a clash between truth and consensus. And I don't know how we get past it. Hmm. What, uh, that, that, that's a powerful way to see it, I think, is this clash between truth and consensus. What, how, how does, I mean, that, how, does, does that mean that, that Trump necessarily had to follow Obama? I don't know. Um, I think as a member of the media and as a member of a group of people who got this election entirely wrong several times over the course of a year, even I had some pretty bad takes. Um, <laughs> it's We like to do a lot of things in, in, in retroactively. We like to, to use that good 2020 hindsight to go, of course, you know, of course Trump had to win. Of course, we, we were wrong. Of course, there's a white backlash. We just missed it. But actually, I think, no, the media played a role in abetting that backlash, in allowing it to fester and allowing the sort of racial animus, racism that developed, not just developed, but that, was, that, that blossomed under President Obama. Uh, we allowed it to happen because we simply would not talk about it. We wouldn't talk about it straight. We wouldn't, we wouldn't tell people this is racism. This is when the, the racially charged thing came about. And lying the truth in that way and, and bowing to consensus in that way is exactly what I think the media did. You know, we talk a lot about emails and, and how we covered Comey and how we covered these things involving uh, what we now know to be the Russian investigation. But we, ha we, we like to talk about that because it's easier to talk about than, than, than the ways, the more mundane ways in which uh, the media abets uh, white supremacy, frankly. Or not necessarily mundane, but ugly. The ugly. uglier ways that it's easier to ignore. Yeah. Do, do you feel like among your peers in, in journalism, there's kind of a, a discussion about this, an awareness of it? Definitely. Um, and, and there's more and more uh, today, especially after Charlottesville. Uh, it was a second awakening for lots of people who... You know, uh, maybe they they did ascribe to the you know, the, the idea that they did, that some facet of white racial resentment gave us Trump or gave us the politics of the last couple of years, but it wasn't still real to them in a way. But Charlottesville made it real. Charlottesville, the largest rally of people that anybody would consider to be white supremacist in dozen in, in decades. That forced journalists, I think, to sit down with the fact that, okay, maybe the institutions aren't going to get you to where you want to be. Maybe they aren't. Maybe they're designed, in a sense, to make it so Charlottesville happens in perpetuity. So I think journalism now is grappling with that, with, with what we may have lost in 68 when King died, what, what journalism was developing a conscious and ethic about race about grappling with the nation's central sin. Post Charlottesville, I think we've really uh, done a bit more soul searching on that, and I hope it continues. It, it feels almost like we're at the beginning of, of, uh, of something here, right? It does. Um, I don't know the beginning of what. I hope it's something good. <laughs> um, I mean, I was struck by, in your writing, 
how uh, you're able to you're able to be very clear eyed about the realities of racism and racial disparity in the country's history. But you also see a lot of hope in the way the country's like willingness to engage and take the statues down. Yeah, I don't think it's possible to do actual reporting to go out to the communities, to talk to black folks and white folks and everybody in Charlottesville, like, like I did and like other reporters are doing, and to come away totally pessimistic about this. When I went to Charlottesville, I didn't talk to just people who were you know, white supremacists. I talked to people who fought white supremacists, people who, not, not the way Antifa fights them, people who have banded together in solidarity against white supremacy for their entire lives, for communities built in that solidarity. I talked to people from outside that community. I talked to young white college kids who went to school and decided they were, you know, they were in church when they heard about white supremacists coming to town. And they said, we're going to go out and do something. And they went out and, and held hands and sit in the park. And it mattered. Some of those people were, the, were also injured in, in the accident, that, the, accident the, the attack that killed Heather Heyer. They were there basically because you know, something compelled them to be there. And I think with enough people like that, that I've talked to in my reporting, they're real people out there, they should give anybody hope that there is a, a different, a new America around the corner. And if enough people like that exist who can be taught, who are brave, and those people are very brave, who are, who are able to challenge things, who are able to think in a new way, uh, that, that we should have reason for, for optimism. Um, now, the actual endurance uh, of racism as displayed by Charlottesville is also a case for pessimism. So, you know, we got to balance the things. Not just by Charlottesville, but by the president. Yeah. So uh, talk to me for a minute about health care. And uh, I guess I, I want to weave the thread together and just understand how you see this discussion of racism, and white supremacy, how that's playing out in health care policy and especially in. The, what, what Congress is considering right now. But also just give us some practical on the ground view of what might play out this week. Okay. Uh, let's see. So Graham Cassidy is, is a bill in front of us this week. Um, I used to like to give predictions on whether these things are going to pass or not, but honestly, the, the, the effort's futile right now. Like nobody knows. Nobody knows what John McCain is thinking. Nobody knows whether Lisa Murkowski is going to flip. Uh, right now, it's an, the, the bill is an unknown quantity. The Congressional Budget Office just said they, they are not going to be able to deliver a reliable score of the bill because it's just so massive. It would, it would be, frankly, the even more so than the previous efforts to repeal Obamacare. Graham Cassidy, the bill that uh, senators are hoping to vote on before September 30th, would be the biggest restructuring of the American healthcare system in 52 years, 53 years. And we know almost nothing about what it would actually do, which is, you know, take a step back. That's become so normal in current politics. But that's absurd that we are restructuring one-sixth to one-fifth of the economy, and we have no idea what is going to happen. Nothing. We, we, we know nothing. We don't even know how much we're going to allocating funding. That's the most basic thing is, is knowing how much money's going towards things. We don't even know that. We don't know how many people are going to lose coverage. We don't know how many people, as a result of losing coverage, are going to die. We don't know how many people are going to gain coverage, who's going to be eligible, what states might do. 
and it's September 19th, and we are going to vote on this thing by September 30th. That is should tell you a whole lot about the state of politics and just what people, uh, where, where our, I don't know, our sense of, of, of who we are in policy has gone. People basically want to repeal Obamacare so badly, for what reasons? Uh, they haven't really given a whole lot of reasons as to why they focus on prices going up, which they are. Premiums are definitely going up for lots of people on the exchange markets. But they point to these things that happen to maybe something south of 10% of all the people with insurance in the, in the country as a reason for restructuring Medicaid, the largest insurer in the country, for reducing what we spend on health insurance by something like a third over the next 20 years. There's something deeper at work. And there's something deeper at work when you are proposing these things and you have absolutely no idea how they're going to help or hurt your constituents. At the end of the day, we forget that Congress, every Congress person, they were voted in by constituents. And how do you go and justify and defend pushing a bill that you have no idea how it's going to affect your constituents? It seems you know, we are in a new era, and it's really hard, again, reporting on this day to day, to step back and say, wow, you know, this is something that's never happened before, but it's never happened before. And yeah, that, that's when I was canvassing governors this morning, when I was talking to people in, in state politics, that was their concern. Was, you know, governors and, and people in state houses are saying, okay, you got this bill, we gotta pass it in 11 days. We have no idea what it's gonna do for us. We gotta run studies, it's gonna take months. And yeah, it's, it's a, a, an abdication of responsibility in some ways uh, to even be at this stage where it's serious. I'm going to ask you one more question. And I'm going to open it up to the audience for questions. So prepare your questions right now. But why, Van, why did you become a reporter? Uh, I didn't like being a health policy analyst. <laughs> um, while I was, I was, I came to journalism out of the Kaiser Family Foundation, where I was a health policy analyst, where I dealt with uh, Medicaid policy, uh, uninsured policy, uh, on a very numbers, uh, percentages, data, spreadsheets basis. And one of the things that I couldn't shake was the idea, was the fact that those percentages, you know, those couple million people here, a couple million pe people there, a couple thousand people here, those are real people. Um, and I, I was really interested in hearing their stories. And as I was actually sitting and telling my wife about uh, being upset that I was reducing people to those numbers, she said, why don't you go write about it? And my wife was always right. So um, that's why I'm a journalist, because my wife, she's right. <laughs> my wife is always right, too. That's something we have in common. <laughs> All right, I'll take questions from the audience. Questions, David? Yeah, Ben, I, uh, I'll start. <clears throat> Hi, it's Dave Beard, research fellow here. Um, is there, um, Bannon once said that if we could talk about identity politics every day, we would win. And uh, I'm wondering if you think there's even a, I'm just trying to track day after day, if there's an effort you know, by this White House to denigrate a person of color each day. <laughs> hmm. Well, I can't say there's an effort. 
I can't say that's a, you know, I'm, I'm not sure what's happening behind the scenes. I'm not sure if there's a policy. Uh, but basically, Bannon's strategy has held. It's the fact that, you know, we don't like to think about white identity politics as identity politics, but they are. And as long as the White House can keep going out there and playing sort of the uh, harp on white grievance, on uh, anxiety about people talking about their identities that aren't white folks, uh, people who are striving to have more power in the system, as long as we can keep doing that, we don't really think about the fact that, like, yeah, Graham Cassidy is totally unprecedented and we have no idea what it's going to do. But, oh, wow, Trump said this thing. Like, it's, it's, I'm not, I can't say it's a purposeful strategy, but regardless, it works. Hi, I'm uh, Hannah Shnashri. I'm a, a research associate at the Massing Polling Group and a freelance reporter at WBUR. I was wondering, with so much happening and changing so quickly, how do you sort of fine tune what exactly it is you're going to write and get it out there in time to be relevant? See, this is where I'm going to have to advocate some very unhealthy uh, tactics. <laughs> um, I don't know any reporter who's covering um, things at the center of the story like this, who sleeps, who uh, eats well enough, who works out well enough. Um, it's maybe necessary because we have too much news um, to, to cover. We could expand the field by a third, by a fourth, still wouldn't have enough people to cover it. But as, in terms of triaging, in terms of finding the right story in the moment, for me, that's the purpose of reporting. So if I find a story that, that, that's important that I think I want to tackle, I start doing my pre-reporting. I call folks. Uh, I call people who may be experts who can give me the rundown. And then through developing the pre-reporting, through talking to folks, and maybe even informally, then you can develop a sense of... Uh, what's the most important, but not only what's the most, 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 what's the most important, but uh, who can give you the most, where you can, where you can, I think, contribute the most as a journalist. And, and that's, to me, you know, everything, every time something happens, I pick up the phone. Um, and, and that's necessary now. Uh, not, not email, not, you know, sending people a tweet. It's the phone, because I get them right away. And then I can start doing the job right then. Um, Otherwise, coffee is very good. Yeah, um, coffee uh, and taking walks so you don't fall asleep. Yeah. Thanks. Hi, I'm Lauren Williams. I'm a fellow here at the Neiman Foundation for Journalism, and I'm an editor at Essence Magazine. Thank you, Anne, for being with us. Um, I just wanted to know, you mentioned that it's not the media's um, responsibility to bow to consensus. and. Do you think that we're going to right our wrongs? Do you see the tide changing where we, to your point, are now pushing ourselves to be ahead of it? And if so, what are the indicators that you see that sort of reconciling happening? So my first impulse uh, answer to your question was absolutely not. Um, no way the media changes. But I do think there are some cases for optimism. The fact that we're having this conversation right now, the fact that there are young journalists who are seeing the moment and are rejecting uh, the urge to bow to consensus, those are promising signs. Now, whether they get washed out over time, I'm not sure. 
but I do think we are having the kinds of conversations we're, we're talking about uh, the media's role in a way uh, that I don't know if we, we, we discussed it in the same way, um, at least not not while I've been a consumer and a member of the media. So I, I think, yeah, well, especially with younger folks who are more and more involved in making media, uh, there are opportunities now to move towards uh, the truth and towards actually probing things. And so hopefully that continues. Yeah. Hi, my name is uh, Bob Evans. I'm a fellow in the Advanced Initiative here at Harvard. And I was wondering that uh, when, I, when I look at the media and, and politicians these days, I see that there's kind of in the same boat as they're both greatly distrusted. How do you see that? How do you see that perception being changed with the media? Well, uh, we in the media like to talk about, a lot about distrust, like we've been, you know, grievously harmed, like people betrayed us, like you know, oh God, I can't believe people no longer trust us. That's that's bad for us. But one thing, I mean, people have never really trusted the media. And they've long had reason not to. Uh, from the days of yellow journalism, we, we've been, you know, I'd say every generation has had a reason not to trust the media. And the modern moment's no different. The way we got the election wrong, getting the election wrong is fine, but the way we forgot uh, to talk to people, the way uh, not just doing, you know, these nice sepia tone. Uh, profiles of working white class folks in the Ozarks that everybody likes to do, uh, but but looking at working class people generally, looking at poor farmers who had to drive 20 miles to the polls, who wrote those stories? I didn't see them. I didn't see stories about the towns that were destroyed by floods that had to go out and vote in two weeks right after that. I didn't see a whole lot about that. So for me, it's the media's job to win back the trust, to win more trust back. Uh, we may not ever get above 30% of uh, favorability ratings in the polls, but it's our job to try. And I'm not sure we're doing the things yet where we, where, where we get there. Um, we still aren't talking to those folks. We still aren't talking to people who are making up more and more the demographic share of America. We're not talking to people, migrant workers in Florida. We're not talking to, to people in uh, you know who are in prisons in, in Idaho, like we're 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 doing, we're making some of the same mistakes while trying to address those mistakes, and it's frustrating. Um, but yeah, I, I, if I were just a consumer, I can't say I would be much more confident in the media. It, what have we done to deserve it? You've you've written uh, you've written about the evolution of black identity, and I wonder how uh, how you think how how you think about or contextualize Black Lives Matter as a movement and what uh, and where that might be going. Where yeah, small question. Yeah, very small. Um, well, it's now been years uh, since. Ferguson, since the words Black Lives Matter were first uh, became a hashtag on, on social media, it's been years. Those things have, have been baked into the way we talk about politics. Uh, now we have 
more, I think, angry response groups uh, and, and people who are cons- who are upset with Black Lives Matter than we have activists on Black Lives Matter side. Um, it, it's it's now a central part of politics. Um, the very idea that black people should have worth and people respond to it in a number of different ways. Um, you could say in addition to sort of uh, listening to people's fears about immigration, um, in addition to talking about economic policy, in addition to attacks on Barack Obama's legacy, one of the main things that Trump ran on, one of the main things that his cohort of Republicans ran on was people who uh, was angst about Black Lives Matter, was people who wanted to pass laws to allow people to run over protesters, uh, people who wanted Blue Lives Matter laws uh, passed to make it a hate crime to even resist arrest. Uh, So right now, I would say, I would flip your question a little bit on its head and say it's not Black Lives Matter that's defining politics today. It's the response to that, essentially that request. Uh, People saying, actually, no. we're not going to make this a more, we don't want to do the things you wanted to do that you thought would uh, make black people worthy of state protection. Actually, no. So, yeah. Hi, uh, hello, Mohammed here, Kennedy School. Nice to meet you. Um, so I wanted to pick up a thread from the last response to the last question. Uh, last night, um, Selena Zito was here. Um, and uh, was talking at length about reporting she did to predict uh, Trump's victory uh, by spending time in a lot of red counties that uh, made up the electoral majority. And uh, I was really surprised by her insistence as a journalist that race could not explain the motivations of these voters. I mean, it just seems like such a narrow way to make a point about kind of the easy out would be that race, among many things, explains these voters. But nevertheless, uh, there was a stake in that claim. And I guess in thinking about her response and also Coach's piece, um, he's made the observation, as a few others have, but seems not to go very far, that uh, one easy way to reconcile uh, white folks out there and whether or not they're racist or not, is to also talk about how journalists describe a working class, which is imagined as white, and then black and brown voters who are hung up on race politics who apparently aren't working class. And Coach's point, as you well know, is they, they are overwhelmingly working class, and therefore, if they rejected Trump and whites didn't, doesn't that suggest that their own white working classes on racial identity politics are playing into it, or their racism, or their religion. So to the extent that Selena represents one constituency within uh, journalism, and books have been written about us ignoring this constituency, uh, on a scale of one to three, um, <laughs> with three being really bad, um, how bad do you think it is in the unwillingness to come to terms with um, this optic that the working class are victims and we need to recover that victim, but it, and we're not going to talk about race with them. 
I'd say a two. Um, <laughs> well, it would be a three of folks like Coates, if people who agreed with Coates, if people like you were not in existence. Um, but they are, and they are at major publications saying these things. Um, and that, that, that opens the door. But to your point about who even gets to be a part of the working class, as a media watcher, go out and see how many times the, the phrase is applied to black and brown people. Nobody calls black people middle class. <laughs> Nobody calls the people who uh, die in violence in Chicago middle, middle class or working class people, although they often are. Nobody calls, people stretch the term to apply to people of the lowest means who are white. You know, they talk about folks in the Ozarks who are, you know, don't have jobs, who uh, there was a good piece on people who were drug dependent uh, and had to panhandle for money. You would never describe a black person panhandling for money as anything sort of virtuous. And, and so it's the term itself has almost become a dog whistle. And it's. Uh, the fact that we know that, though, is why I have to say it's a two. The fact that people are there pushing back and saying, I actually know race is complicated. Racism is complicated. Racism doesn't just mean you're a bigot who pushes black people off steps. Uh, it could mean lots of things. Um, and it can influence lots of things. And it can act in concert with lots of things. There are folks saying that. And the fact that we're discussing it uh, means it can be improved and expanded upon. So. Patrick Whitney, I'm a visiting professor in the School of Public Health and Design. Um, I'd like to go back to your, your point about trust in the media. Uh, one can make the case that there's a decline in mass media and mainstream media, and there's a rise in citizen reporting and citizen journalism, which is going to make the job of knowing whether things are true or not, or have any veracity whatsoever. Uh, a problem. Uh, what is, do you see anything going on to deal with this issue of trust as media fractures into tens of thousands of channels? Yeah, I think let's add one more dimension, two more dimensions to that. Um, it's also the demise of local media outlets, uh, the demise of local papers, local TV stations, places where people always gave them over 50% trust, even as they hated, say, CNN, right? And now all you have is CNN, or like you said, you're a citizen journalist, or the, the fourth dimension is the rise of super conservative uh, sites and places, not just conservative, that spread purposefully misinformation. So those are, you know, you have a totally new media landscape today than you did a couple years ago. And I would say, like you, like you, you point out there, that landscape itself contributes to, to people not trusting media. You don't have the sort of rigorous uh, fact-checking that you might have at your local paper. People don't realize, but like local papers were great for fact-checking. And, and because you, know, you, you couldn't go out and say something wild about the mayor and not have it fact-checked. Um, but the actual institutions where we've, as a, pe as a people, have uh, reinforced gone after and tried to find what's true or not, they've gotten broader and broader. They've gone f further and further away from uh, the actual instances of news. So by the time they, they get around, by the time you have a wild claim about you know 
somebody having impeachment papers about Trump and Supreme Court, that's already in the millions of people's consumption before it's fact-checked. Mm -hmm. And so that, yeah, it's, it's a recipe for disaster. And you have Facebook now who's dabbling in sort of uh, and being hit pretty badly in media recently for uh, aiding the spread of fake news, for allowing it uh, even worse than fake news to spread on this platform. And again, there's no human in between you and the news anymore who's saying, okay, I actually know this is wrong. Um, yeah, and it seems it's only going to continue. So. Maybe if reporting becomes free, we need to pay more money for fact-checkers. We should pay more money for fact-checkers, yes. <laughs> Here, and then. Hi. Uh, my name is Joan Moon. I'm a first-year MPP here at the Kennedy School. Uh, you said in a tweet once, a system cannot fail those it was never meant to protect. Um, and I'm wondering if that kind of very frank talk about race um, and sort of, I feel like in the last decade, we've stopped tiptoeing around white people's feelings. Um, I wonder if you think that that has sort of contributed to the election of Trump and, and a backlash from the right. Probably has. Um, I would caution that the last 20, 30 years or so, um, we treat it like it's all of history in a sense, but it might just be a mirage. Um, the, the, the rise of people like to talk about PC as sort of this, this new thing where people like to talk about their identities and get a little messy. But PC orig originated as you know um, people not talking about race in this sort of open way. People not talking about identity in this open way. It, it originated as a way to get everybody in the same room and not be uncomfortable. But maybe un being uncomfortable is necessary for actually moving the politics forward. I would say during most of those 20, 30 years, we were in sort of stasis. We were in political stasis. We, we uh, had the war on drugs. The war on drugs was going on. Nobody challenged it. Mass incarceration developed. Nobody challenged it. Then you have people saying, wait, wait, okay, why are all these things happening in a country that's supposed to be developing a post-race identity? Um, and when you start questioning things, as we saw the civil rights movement, as we saw with the assassination of King and, and Malcolm X and other folks, when you start questioning things, when you start questioning the status quo, things get dangerous. Um, things get a little difficult. And right now, things are dangerous and difficult. So, do do you think that transition is a generational one? Yes. Um, what seems to be uh, most of the people who seem to be making the news, making the uh, pushing the the agenda forward, are people who were uh, rather young uh, when President Obama was elected. Who nine eleven is on the cusp of their memory, hmm. and. They live post 9-11 fracture. Um, they were promised the age of post-race with President Barack Obama. And on both sides, people who uh, are anxious about people of color gaining more power and people of color who want more power, on both sides, they found out that was not quite true. And so, yeah, I'd say you know the young folks today, people my age range a little bit younger, they are driving this. Um, and, and that's because lots of them uh, bought into something that turned out to be a lie. 
Bought into what that turned out to be a lot. That's I would say post-racial society. The idea that we were finally done asking these hard questions. Now we can go and and and, and do the fun stuff. On. Yeah, we can now be we can, we can be on. fun and, and hug and yeah. <laughs> Hi, thank you so much for being here. Uh, my name is Kara Kaufman. I'm a first-year master's student here at the Kennedy School. Uh, my understanding, when we look back at this past election cycle, is that if we took the percentage of people eligible in America to vote, um, and we looked at the percentage who voted for Hillary Clinton, percentage who voted for Donald Trump, and percentage who did not vote, that that third category would actually be the biggest uh, bucket. Um, and so my, my question is, to what degree do you think the media has a responsibility or um, should be really examining sort of a bigger conversation or bigger question about who gets to vote in America? Um, and to what degree do you feel that um, Examining uh, that piece and its multiple, you know, layers um, is something that the media is interested in exploring, or or potentially isn't. And if so, I'd be curious to hear why not. I'll make one caveat before I answer. Um, actually, the way turnout turned out um, in 2016 was pretty much on par, in line with every election aside from 2012 and 2008. Um, the people who didn't turn out didn't turn out and haven't turned out historically. Um, and there's a reason for that. Uh, we like to think of history in this really neat sort of framework where we got the Voting Rights Act. We allowed people who were 18 and, uh, and uh, older to vote in 68, and then people voted. But actually, the share of voters has, if anything, declined since then. Um, it hasn't moved up. There hasn't been a mass turnout election other than Barack Obama's Maybe Reagan's, um, but but yeah, like voting in America has consistently been one of the lowest turnout uh, democracies in the world. And why is that? And I think it's because number one, people have no ingrained faith that the system's going to work for them. When you carved out people, whole classes of people for a hundred years, it's hard to. I mean, it's easy to see why they have might not have faith. And we haven't worked as a country to regain it, re, not to regain, to gain that faith, to capture it. You see now people are moving forward more measures to suppress votes. Uh, we still have massive problems with felony incarceration, uh, and, and, and uh, felony disenfranchisement, rather. We haven't done really much anything to address the reasons why people would not trust our democracy to be a democracy. So what do you expect? Do you expect democracy when we haven't been one for a, a true one for most of our history? And we haven't really gone and done the things to make people buy into what the democracy is today? Um, you, you've seen some limited successes in states that used to be under Jim Crow when they expanded voting laws, when they allowed early voting, when they went and, and added a Sunday day for voting for people to go on church during church, for black folks especially to go during church. And those actually did improve turnout. But then you had people who did not like those things came in and started eroding them. And what would that say to you as a person who maybe voted for the first time after a Sunday service two years ago? And people want to take that away. Why would you continue to vote? If people, okay, yeah, you want to go out and like stop it, but also you could have the opposite effect. People might be discouraged enough to not want to trust the process again. It's very fragile. Um, and 
uh, people know that it's fragile. And I think uh, lots of folks are okay with that. Donna? Thanks for coming. I'm, I'm concerned that our conversations around race has gotten into this left-right polarization frame. Uh, and when we talk about it from the right, it's about racial grievances, it's about uh, the racial backlash. But from the left, we don't have a conversation. It's almost like a void, a blank. We assume that those on the left are with us or have a greater understanding about race. And so my question to you is, what can the left do to show that they have not just a quote-unquote a great understanding and empathy on issues of race, but they are also helping lead the discussion and change the narrative on race as well. Well, hmm. one of the most salient uh, responses from conservatives when uh, charges of racism are levied against them are, hey, all the racist stuff happens in liberal cities. <laughs> and it's true. I mean, like, stop and frisk. Uh, the, the fact that people in Chicago were being held in black sites uh, all the housing disparities, redlining, those happened and are happening in places run by solidly blue coalitions of, of folks. And we're at a university now, you know, one of the main drivers of displacement of people of color from poor neighborhoods has been universities, liberal universities. So I think one of the ways, first of all, is never to excuse oneself um, and to always uh, think about it, it doesn't have to be a thing where you're self you know you, you flagellating where, you, where you're attacking yourself where you're going out and you, you, you write your privileges down on a piece of paper and carry them on your chest you don't have to do that <laughs> but you do have to think about the ways we're all involved and complicit and then you can start to you, it's like environmentalism you know you, you turn your lights off every now and then you know you, you go out and you advocate for folks every now and then you you go out and you allow uh, or you promote uh, diversity in your workplace you, you you recommend a person of color for a job and those are the type of things you know we, we, we can move and, and people who are liberals can move and say look you know I'm, I'm doing something I'm working and those build and snowball over time. I'm not asking people, you know, to go out and again beat themselves up every day. But yeah, the fact that the fact of the matter is, like you brought up, uh, everyone's complicit, and it's not just a left and right thing. And people got to realize that. Last question. Oh, uh, that puts a lot of pressure on me. <laughs> Hi, my name is Charlie Graham. I'm a first year doctoral student at the School of Public Health. Um, so ten years ago. Um, I went to your home state for college, spent four long years in North Carolina. Um, and what school? Uh, Wake Forest. Wake Forest. So okay. And one of the, you know, I'm an immigrant who came from Florida, so I suffered basically culture shock. Um, I learned a lot about Southern America and you know things about race, and in a lot of ways, North Carolina is like ground zero in terms of like the culture wars, and it's a bellwether in terms of a lot that is going on in our political climate. So I'm interested in hearing what you have to say about what North Carolina can offer us in terms of um, ways to look forward, ways that, so it's not gonna be okay. And I think back to your piece a few months ago about the coup, the coup d'etat that happened in North Carolina. That was mind blowing. So I feel, I feel as if that whenever there has been progress for you know, people of color or marginalized groups, 
the backlash is always unrelenting. So you speak about that as Well, the one thing North Carolina can offer more than anything else is biscuits. Um, and honestly, biscuits, if we had enough biscuits, we may be able to solve everything. Uh, and gravy, yes. <laughs> but North Carolina is so important, uh, not just important to me, but I think important to this conversation about race, about the American story, because North Carolina has a bit of everything. It's uh, Historically, it's not a border state, but it sort of is a border state. Um, the uh, Civil War, you had white unionists in North Carolina who were fighting against uh, secessionists. You, so you had a mini civil war being fought in North Carolina. Uh, demographically, you got, a, you got pretty sizable populations of every, just about every demographic group. Uh, you got uh, lots of different economic variation. You got lots of clashes between different classes. Uh, so, so North Carolina really tells, I think, a lot of the story in micro, in a way that we can digest it. Uh, and unfortunately, one of the pieces of that story is, is things like the coup, uh, things like the Wilmington uh, massacre in 1898, where uh, the only coup d'etat on American soil, uh, where uh, a progressive multiracial government was elected and white supremacists uh, burned down the black neighborhood and chase the government out of town. Uh, that happened on American soil. No, not, not all the folks talk about it. But talking about it, I think, like you said, um, what you said brought to mind something from another North Carolinian, uh, Reverend Barber, and he calls today the modern moment the third reconstruction. Um, whether you agree with that framework or not, the lessons, I think, apply. Uh, the lessons of reconstruction were that there was a moment when people were working together, it was by no means a utopia. Uh, it was by no means entirely progressive. But uh, people of color and, and white folks did work in some capacity together. People of different classes worked in some capacity together. There was some sort of solidarity. Uh, today's a little bit you know, similar, I think. It, there, were, there are more people post-civil rights movement who are open to working together. There is more of a challenging of institutions. Um, and as with the first Reconstruction today, there looks to be a backlash to those things. Um, the, the fact of the matter is that when norms are challenged, uh, things get dicey. And that's what's happening. One last question. What, what are you reading? Hmm. Um, I am reading, I just finished reading uh, Jasmine Ward's excellent fiction um, excellent novel, Sing Unburied Sing. And actually, I'm going back through uh, some James Baldwin um, today. So uh, I would recommend, everybody's probably read it, but The Fire Next Time. And uh, yeah, that's what I'm reading now. Folks, uh, Van Arnu Kirk II, it's really uh, amazing to have you here today. And I, I just want to say, in preparing for this and looking at the range of subjects you've written about, we didn't even touch uh, uh, environmental issues or even in public health that much. You're a true polymath. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. Music provided by ExtremeMusic.com. <laughs>